Well, we're going to get started again. Um, first, I want to just thank our last panel for really doing a terrific job of setting up our conversations for the rest of the day through their really rich first conversation. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Joyce Klein. Uh, I'm a member of the Economic Opportunities Program team. I uh, direct our Business Ownership Initiative, which you might surmise from the name, is the part of the, our work, uh, or houses the part of our work at the Economic Opportunities Program that focuses on expanding opportunity through business ownership. Um, and as, as Dan and Maureen mentioned at the top of our program, um, the, the issue of inclusion is really critical to our work at EOP. Um, it's at, and it's critical to the work of many of our colleague policy programs at the Aspen Institute as well. And um, thinking about the work we do in business ownership, inclusion is very central to that. Um, the work that we do um, works deeply with community-based lenders and other nonprofit organizations that work to provide um, information, access to capital, access to markets to entrepreneurs who are struggling to build um, businesses because they are not able to access sort of the traditional resources or source of support that are out there for entrepreneurs uh, in, our, in our economy and in our communities. So the whole field of work that we do is really based on this issue of inclusion and how do we open opportunity, opportunity open resources to more folks. And um, we do a lot of work with those organizations on the ground and we also work with researchers and policymakers and donors and, and investors who support their work. Um, and one of the reasons we have this focus on expanding economic opportunity through business ownership is we really believe that um, owning businesses is one of the key ways that people generate wealth in our economy. Uh, and so we say this issue of expanding business ownership is really critical to addressing the racial and gender wealth gaps um, that are such a problem in our, in our economy right now. Um, and so we've looked at that in our research and evaluation work uh, and in some of the dialogues we have with donors and with policymakers. Now, I'd also note that we've talked a lot in the last panel about issues of job quality and this Work on job quality really connects to the work that we do in entrepreneurship as well. Um, we often see that an individual's opportunities uh, and their experience with business ownership is directly connected to their experiences in the labor market. Um, often people build businesses around skills and connections um, that they build in, in their employment lives. Uh, and then they take that and translate that into their own business. And so to the extent that we have people in our communities, people who for reasons of race and gender um, are focused in one particular, only provided access to one particular part of the labor market, that shapes what they're able to do in terms of business ownership as well. So I think it's no surprise that we see particularly among African-American women, high levels of concentration in daycare and service businesses because that's where we've allowed black women to work in our economy. Um, and so there's a connection between what people are able to access in employment and what they're able to experience in terms of, of entrepreneurship. Um, the other thing I would say is we also see that in larger firms that are partly or fully owned by employees, we often see higher levels of job quality. So there's a, there's a connection there between ownership and, and job quality. Um, so our next conversation is going to go deeper into that issue of inclusion. And it's going to really focus on how the issues of race, place, and gender uh, play a role in shaping who has access to opportunity and the quality of opportunity that they're able to access. And importantly, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the challenges that we see in terms of 
race, place, and gender, but we're also going to talk hopefully about lift up some of the solutions and the work that folks are doing to try to address that. So our panelists have some really important perspectives and experiences to bring to that, and you can read more about them um, in, the, in the bios that we provided to you. Um, but we have, um, first to my immediate right, <laughs> uh, Betsy Beeman, who's CEO of Coastal Enterprises in Maine. And then we have Gayatri Agnew, who's a senior director at walmart.org. Then we have Gary Cunningham, who's the president and CEO of Prosperity Now. And our moderator is Tracy Jan from the Washington Post. So with a final reminder to, again, silence your cell phones, but please tweet using the talk opportunity hashtag. I'm going to turn it over to Tracy. Thank you so much for being here today on a great fall Friday afternoon. So I write about the intersection of race and the economy at the Washington Post. And I'm very fortunate that I was able to launch this beat in December 2016 after the last campaign. I used to be a political reporter, covered the last two presidential races for the Boston Globe. And now you know, race and the economy are always relevant, but especially today in, in our political discourse. I wanted to allow the panelists to talk a little bit more about their personal lives and how that brought their interest into the current work that they're doing with regards to inclusion and what inclusion actually means to them. So Gary, would you please start us off and discuss? I'd be glad to. I'll tell you all my personal business. And, <laughs> uh, so I actually grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I grew up in a very poor family. Uh, we were uh, on welfare, and, and one of my vivid memories is uh, seeing uh, men come outside of our house to turn off our gas in the middle of the winter. Uh, and uh, my mother had four children. And we, I remember uh, uh, being in front of a space heater uh, where, uh, you know, and how many of you been to Minnesota? Okay. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about, middle of the winter, it gets pretty cold there. Um, uh, but I was fortunate that I had some, uh, some adults in my life that really helped me um, uh, transverse, transverse that uh, 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 the, the experience of being a low-income person to actually being someone uh, that actually used my skills and talents and abilities to actually move to the next level. And it wasn't just because of me, it was because of, of people that came into my life. And I think we all have those people that have helped us get to the next level. But they also taught me that I had a responsibility and a duty uh, to use whatever skills and talents uh, and privilege that I have been able to get to uh, enrich the lives and change the lives of others. I am dedicated, I uh, have dedicated my life to uh, uh, changing the trajectory of this country, particularly for low-income and moderate-income people, so that we can all participate fully in our democracy. We can't all participate if we don't all have economic means to do so, that we can't participate in our financial and uh, structures and systems. And so my background really speaks to who I am and what I am, and I made some determinations at an early age to do this work, so. Gayatri? Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Tracy, I appreciate you starting off by asking us to share sort of a little bit of our stories. And given that all of you are inside on a sunny Friday afternoon talking about economic opportunity, I also want each of you, as we're sharing those, to think in the back of your mind about what yours is. 
uh, because every person in this room has a unique story that makes you motivated enough to work on this issue nationally to sit here on a sunny Friday afternoon. So thank you all for being here as well. Um, so uh, I was born and raised in East Palo Alto, California, um, which for those of you that know Silicon Valley is very other side of the tracks, quite literally other side of the tracks. And um, I was raised by a single mom who's a teacher. Um, and it wasn't until I was in middle school that she got her teaching credential. Um, and prior to that, she um, worked in early learning and she worked for hourly wages and she worked in inconsistent work. Um, and when my mom got a full-time teaching job in middle school, it changed everything in my life and my sister's life. And when I say everything, I mean we stopped getting underwear for Christmas, right? Like it, it, and it's a, it's a simple thing, but when you're living it and you're experiencing it, you don't realize that there's a future state that could be different than it. Um, and so for me personally, having navigated through multiple different classes in the US as an individual, from a child to being in middle school, to now working at the Fortune One, having put myself through school after I dropped out and then going back to get my MBA while I worked full time. Um, this, these issues are really personal. Um, and I think to exactly Gary's point, this idea that Gayatri did this is just hogwash. Um, I did this with the support of the community in which I was raised. Um, we lived in public housing and it was one of the only public-private partnerships in Palo Alto, California. Um, and the day we moved into that house was the most important day in my life um, because it changed that day and the day my mom got a full-time job are the two things that changed the trajectory of, of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've, I've, I work at Walmart now. I've worked there for five years and that entire time um, I've been working on creating pathways to economic opportunity for, um, for American workers who work at Walmart and who work in other places. Um, I, I take the sort of personal philosophy that you need to make change from the outside, for that you need to both make change from the outside in and you need to make change from the inside out. And so I'm sure there are those in this room who really um, gravitate toward making change from the outside in. I'm one that gravitated toward making change from the inside out and we are both an important part of the change narrative. Great, Betsy. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks, thanks for, for pinch hitting. Oh, my pleasure. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I guess my story is really an intergenerational story and perhaps one that was alluded to in the earlier session about the opportunity um, to uh, over generations in the early part of the last century perhaps being a little different than it is today. Um, my mother's parents came to this country from Greece 99 years ago and my grandfather worked in an eyeglass manufacturing uh, plant in western Massachusetts. Um, and they had nine children, all of whom either went to college, went into business, or went into the military. My father came here several decades later with $40 in his pocket, but with a PhD from a European university. And you know, between my mother's side and my father's side of the family, they were able to create a you know, good life for themselves and to put their kids through college. Um, and really, what I've been doing most of my career is trying to make sure that everyone has that same opportunity. The challenge is that, that sort of Horatio Alger-ish story of they worked hard and they did it by themselves, I think, um, covers up the kinds of systems um, supports and investment that we've been talking about, and some of which has um, either eroded or is going away in today's economy. Um, but at Coastal Enterprises, which we'll be talking about um, in a little bit, really what 
what we've been trying to do for 41 years is help make the economy work well for everyone in Maine and uh, more recently in rural regions around the country. Great. Thank you all for that personal touch. It really is able, people are able to connect these issues because everyone has their own story, as you mentioned. Um, I want to talk about the current state of inclusion in America. And Gary, you've described race as a wicked problem, one that you've written about, how people's perceptions of it make it more difficult to address the root causes of inequality. Mm -hmm. And we know that the racist systems and structures at the foundation of our country continues to have a big influence today. How do you even begin discussing this complex topic that can be so sensitive um, depending on the audience? Because we can't really fix what we don't openly talk about. Uh, thank you for the question. I, uh, so where I'll start is um, we're, we try to solve these issues using technical means. And these are not technical problems. They're actually issues of values that are underlying the dynamic that we have in this country where uh, a, a large section of our population uh, is asset poor, and it, uh, uh, as well as income poor. And, and the fact is, is that there, there have been various attempts to try to create inclusion of everyone. So you look at the New Deal or the civil rights movement in this country. These were efforts to really transform America, uh, but we haven't gotten there. Uh, and so I'm not hopeless, I'm hopeful. So when you think about solving uh, uh, complex uh, adaptive problems, you really have to start uh, looking at, there's not one solution. There's not one fix. When we think about the issue of race, and that's where you started out uh, at, uh, first of all, if, if we continue down the path we are uh, in terms of race, and so Pew uh, Charitable Trust came out with a report a, a few weeks ago that talked about the, uh, the divergence of opinion between people of color and white people on this issue of race. And the gulf is wide, meaning black people have a total different view of where things sit than whites. And over the last three years, that, that gulf has actually increased and not decreased. So we've seen actually a shift in racial attitudes and racial thinking in our country about this. Uh, but uh, I'll give you a metaphor, and the metaphor is what happened to the people on Indian in, on Easter Island. So you, if people know what Easter Island is, this island in the Mediterranean, there were people on it. They lived there for many thousands of years, but they all went away, uh, in part because they didn't see their own interests uh, being eroded because they were using up their natural resources. Right? And so the question of us being tied together in this mutual dance that we're in, uh, that the more we can't see each other in the picture, the more uh, we're going to end up like in uh, Easter Island. Uh, and so, and that's true with climate change, but it's also true in what happens in our country, given the demographic shifts 
that are happening right now in our country. And so part of what we need to be able to do is reframe the question, right? Reframe the, the, how we talk about these issues. Uh, and this is a long-term strategy, but I've seen it happen. So if you look at uh, gay marriage, uh, when I grew up, I would have never thought that people that love each other of the same sex could get married. But we were able to transform our thinking about that because of personal relationships. So I think there is hope for us to change, but we actually have to define it so that whites see themselves in the picture and people of color also see themselves in the picture and that we all actually belong together in this country and moving each other forward. And so I'll stop there. Oh, thank you for that. I was just thinking about what you said on gay marriage. I remember in a um, couple years before it became legal for gay Samaria, I was down in North Carolina writing about redistricting and I met this pastor who was a big gay marriage equality rights activist. And she actually trying to prepare the, the South and the cultural fabric for the day that gay marriage would eventually become legal. They would organize these civil rights actions mm -hmm. where they would get gay couples to go and ask for marriage licenses at the various courthouses. Right. So I went down with them in Mississippi and people would just say the most horrible things as we're marching down the street. I was a reporter, I was following them. And I remember this one woman looked down and said her grandmother lived down the street who she's no longer in touch with ever since her grandmother found out that she was gay in love with a woman. And you know, she was telling me these stories of her grandmother taking her shopping and blueberry festivals and then now they're no longer in touch. And you know, it was really sad, but we didn't know at the time that within two years that gay marriage would actually be legal because the public opinion had already begun to shift nationally and including in the South because there were people who were gay right. everywhere. Exactly, and, and so I actually think we can use, uh, uh, you know, the best thing I ever did, I was a county administrator in a uh, semi-rural, semi-urban place, and I was the only person of color, and I was the leader. Uh, and I could have come in there and said, well, you know, we're gonna do, you know, you gotta hire people of color, et cetera. The best thing I ever did, and this is the truth, is that I matched each of my leaders up with a person of color that was a graduate student out of the Humphrey uh, Institute or school. And uh, it was powerful because when you have a personal relationship with somebody, when, you get, when you're able to walk across and see the other person as a human being in the context of what we're doing, it actually changes hearts and minds. And so I'm not, you know, I know we have to work on the policy and we have to look on the political, but we also have to change people's hearts and minds about the other. And everybody has to see themselves in the circle of human concern, meaning everybody has to be in the circle. And so we've got so much hatred that's built up in our country around each other. Uh, and, 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 you know, I could be just hating everybody given what's happened to my community and what my people. Uh, but I actually choose, and all of us can decide to choose to actually redefine that. And I wanted to talk about this in the sense of a broader diversity. We were talking earlier, Gayatri and um, Betsy, about misunderstanding between urban and rural and how urban folks think rural is like all one thing. Could, Gayatri, could you talk a little bit about the study that Walmart did and what you've actually found in yeah, terms of Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy what? to share a little bit about the America at Work report that we put out earlier this year. But, but before I do, I just what, 
One of the things I think, Gary, that, that you're commenting on and Tracy that you asked about is history in the US. And I think when we talk about race in America, we often do it too much from the standpoint of today and not enough with an acknowledgement of the history. And it's very easy to feel like history is not a statement of fact the way it's sometimes shared mm -hmm. here. Um, and, so, and so I just wanted to share one of the things that's been personally really moving for me as being someone inside of corporate America trying to tackle these challenges was a choice that our company made to bring, um, bring a training in called the Racial Equity Institute. And I don't know if any of you mm -hmm. have had a chance to go through that, um, but there, there's a analogy they use in the training that we've now used with our corporate leaders that talks about groundwater, right? And so if you walked by a lake and you saw one fish floating in the lake, you'd go, oh, that poor fish. But if you walked by that same lake and you saw it was full a fish floating at the top, what would you ask about? The fish or the lake? And if you were asking about the lake, you would then start to ask about the groundwater. And America's history with race is the groundwater of the previous panel's conversation about why we face so many systemic challenges when it comes to these tough questions around economic opportunity. And so I, it, that's not a solution, it's just a statement of fact. And, but I think if we can start from there, it makes some of the conversations not easier to have, they're really hard to have, but it gives them context that we can share in versus all coming at it from a different standpoint. Um, so the, the urban-rural question, so um, earlier this year, Walmart uh, partnered with the McKinsey Global Institute. Um, we have 4,700 stores across the United States, and we employ 1.2 million people. So when you think about the tapestry and the complexity of working Americans, and you think about the complexity of communities in America, Walmart is a really, uh, we're present in the vast majority of those communities. And we were seeing things that are a lot more complex than urban and rural. And we wanted to raise up that economic complexity because it's our, it's our nation's challenge today is to figure out how to make space to support and allow each of those different types of communities to thrive. Um, and so we partnered to do this report that looked at the county level of analysis as sort of the micro level of analysis. So we looked across America's 3,000 counties and came up with eight archetypes of economic regions. And we were looking in particular at variables that contribute to economic resiliency in that community, or said another way, as technology continues to change and automation continues to rise, which, which regions will be best able to navigate that transformation and that change. And, and what we found won't surprise anybody, right? It's, it's more complicated than urban and rural. Um, so one, you know, a couple of examples of the, the archetypes, and you guys can find this online, um, just Google America at work um, and you'll find it, Walmart probably put in there, um, is, is an example of where I live in Bentonville, Arkansas as a small independent economy. That means we're actually a very vibrant, dynamic economy, but not attached to a large metropolitan area. Another example was the urban core, as distinct from the urban periphery, right, or what we would commonly call the suburbs. But then you also had areas like North Dakota, which are resource-rich regions, strong, booming economies, but for a specific 
reason and a specific access to natural resource, right? Um, one of my favorites, I feel I can say this while sitting on the stage at Aspen, was the Great Escapes. Um, they were economically and statistically different than everywhere else. These are places like Nantucket or Aspen or Jackson Hole. But looking across, across the United States and actually seeing that complexity of our 3,000 counties, what you found is that you're going to see as much of Americana and distressed Americana in California as you are in Arkansas. Right? As it happens, you have a higher concentration of the archetype that we term distressed Americana in the American South. And, and that shouldn't surprise anyone in this room, but it's, a, it's just a different lens through which to see the complexity of the economic, um, economic um, issues in the US. Could, could you briefly dis define what distressed Americana sure, characteristics sure. are? Sure, sure. So um, I'm not going to dare attempt to recite the like <laughs> 60 different variables that we used. Again, it's all online. Um, it is Friday afternoon and I'm tired. But but it, it was really cool, right? It's a holistic analysis at things like level of education, um, wages, rise and fall of GDP in that market, um, inflow and outflow of population. And so we categorized distressed Americana as places where you're seeing a net decline and or outflow of all of those things. So things are going mostly just down and not up. And that's that's not a judgment. It's, it's attempting to be a little bit more of a statement of fact. And then we say, okay, then what become the unique needs of a community where capital is primarily flowing out? Well, it's for capital to flow in, right? And so that's that's not shocking information, but we don't treat communities necessarily differently based on their economic characteristics. Right. And so what, what we were trying to say is um, the way to the way to mitigate changes in technology and changes in the workforce today um, in a place like Benton, Arkansas, has got to look different than it will in a place like San Francisco, California. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, that may sound obvious, but as you read the rhetoric on future of work, that complexity often gets lost and you hear blanket statements about what's happening in America, but America is a collection of regional economies, and we have right. to look at, at the unique characteristics of each of those economies. Right. And Betsy, on that right. note, I was hoping you can talk about, in terms of outflow and rural communities, what the role of immigration is. And you know, in Maine, there's a large refugee population as well, right. given the political discourse vilifying immigration mm -hmm. in some um, places. who? We can talk about like who benefits from, right. who are the benefactors, or sorry, the beneficiaries of economic opportunity. Who is it for? Well, for those of you who don't know much about Maine, um, we are half of the landmass of New England, and we're one of the um, one of the last states to regain our sort of economic foothold after the Great Recession. Um, despite that, we have a lot of the variation that you just talked about uh, in the sense that. Um, most of our growth has been in the south, in the greater Portland area, while our rim counties, as we call them, and more, more remote counties um, are still struggling. So with that comes, we are the oldest state in the nation. We are the whitest state in the nation. Um, yet, uh, and uh, we, would, we have more people dying than being born. So without immigrants and refugees, um, our economy would be in um, worse shape, um, and they are definitely part of our future. Uh, we've had periods uh, in the recent past when we had a gubernatorial administration that frankly was not welcoming of people of 
different races, ethnicities, and particularly immigrants and refugees. Our organization, Coastal Enterprises, has worked with immigrant and refugee entrepreneurs for over 20 years. I've worked with folks from 92 different countries, have helped um, 450 businesses be started by folks who have come, sort of like my grandparents and my dad came to this country, coming to Maine to start, to start businesses. Um, but like with women, like with people of color, immigrants and refugees have a harder time getting access to capital. They have additional barriers either of language or also just um, our way of doing things. We had um, Mariama Jallo came from the Gambia and her um, family had always run stores and so she thought she'd start a little grocery store and realize that there actually are quite a lot of um, immigrant-owned, uh, refugee-owned um, grocery stores with um, carrying particularly culturally um, specified foods or products and she realized, well, that's that doesn't make sense because that's sort of the... The, um, we have a lot of those, and that's sort of a crowded marketplace, so she decided she wanted to start a, a hair braiding and hair product salon with in increasing numbers of immigrants and refugee women wanting um, particular hair products that just your, your more traditional um, main um, market didn't provide. And again, needing to have help getting um, in, in the Gambia, she could just open up the shop and get started. And here there were permits, there were um, licensing. And in fact, in the case of licensing, you need, uh, in this country, you needed a, um, a, uh, a special cosmetology license to start. Because in um, traditional beauty care, you are using chemicals or other things. But actually, in her particular case, she wasn't using chemicals. So we helped her actually change the regulation so that she didn't need to get a cosmetology license and could start her business. Um, but it's folks who are starting um, all sorts of businesses. Um, but as I said, sometimes due to language or lack of familiarity with our business laws and procedures um, need particular help. Um, but so we, we created a... Um, a Sharia-compliant loan product. If you are oh, a practicing wow. Muslim, you can't pay interest, and that's a big damper on getting capital in our system. Um, but we created a product in a conjunction with a um, professor of Islamic economics and folks from the business community. And so a lot of folks have been able to get access to capital to start their businesses um, through that vehicle. That's great. I should do a story about that. Right. That's <laughs> happy to. <laughs> when you were talking about licensing, I was just thinking, of, I just spent most of the summer writing about the licensing barriers for people with criminal records right. and talk about lack of inclusion of economic mm -hmm. opportunity. A lot of the, I mean, these people have served their time no matter what their crime was for, but in many states, there are a lot of licenses that they can't get, licenses for jobs that have nothing to do with the crimes that they committed. Um, so that's a conversation that's happening in the states now, and people are getting that changed. And I think I, I was focusing on Rhode Island as the main character um, because they have actually some of the strictest occupational licensing laws, but also were ahead of the times, ahead of the curve in terms of sentencing reform. That's right. So, Guy Trey, I wanted to ask you on um, the front line of retail is often women and minorities, and Walmart not you know, being the largest employer, reflecting that same statistic, how do you, and, and the leadership in corporations are often not women and minorities. What is, is there a plan to change that? And how do you address that 
Um, well, I, I don't know if I address it all by myself. <laughs> though, though I'm, if you ask anyone at Walmart, they tell you I'm certainly trying. Um, <laughs> so, so you know, again, I, I really like to talk about the facts. Um, and the fact is that there are more women of color working in retail, and they are on the front line. Um, and, and the fact is that the leadership in retail, not just at Walmart, but across the entire sector, right? If you've run into a store manager at any of the retailers, um, odds are good, just statistically speaking, that it's likely to be a man and that it's likely to be a white man. And that's not a knock of any kind. It's just a statement of fact. So then you have to ask, why? What's, what's going on? And um, I could tell you, except the previous panel outlined it so well for you, right? Like, they gave you so many of the reasons why. Um, and those are the systemic barriers for advancement, in particular, I think, for, for women. Um, and so I work on the philanthropic side of, of Walmart. So I work for walmart.org. And one of the things that we've worked really hard on over the last several years is to build a research agenda that helps us have a shared fact base to have and to start these challenging conversations. Um, and so there's a report that we, um, we supported which looked explicitly at the advancement of women from frontline front line retail jobs um, into leadership roles. And it looked at the 12 primary barriers um, that are created that, that make it harder for women um, to advance in those roles. And, and while none of the specific barriers would surprise you, right, when, when have we looked at in that way and asked those questions? Um, and so, you know, with that report, it was released um, earlier this year, it was released in spring. And one of the things I'm really proud of that happened with that report is our company and a whole host of other companies, retailers grabbed that report and then they took those 12 things they could or should be doing and they started doing an inventory, right? And so part of this um, is it's very easy to be frustrated about the demographics or composition in the workforce today. I'm frustrated about it. I would like it to look different. But none of us can snap our fingers and make it different. And so how do we sort of get on that path to understand the complexity, and it is complex, to say there's one simple fix if we just fix scheduling, if we just fix childcare, if we just fix wage, if we just, it's, it's all of it. It's all of it. And different retailers, different companies, due to different sort of mixes of their business, are going to be able to fix different pieces in different ways. Um, but you know, I, I'm assuming many of you saw the um, research that came out by McKinsey and LinkedIn, uh, not LinkedIn, Lean In last week. It's a beautiful piece about it that talked about women at the C-suite. And then it actually backed all the way up to sort of that it showed this great bar chart and it showed that the, de the decline of women advancing actually happens at that very first rung. It's the first promotion for women. And if that first promotion doesn't occur, well, then we can all do math. And you get why when you get to the C-suite, you see fewer women involved. Um, and, and they actually called it, I think, the, the first broken rung on the ladder, right? And so the report that we put out about advancing women in retail is one small contribution to trying to ask the question, what are the barriers, to then ask the next question, what are you, employer, Walmart, or anyone else doing about those barriers? And third, what can the community do to address those barriers, right? Because it is, it is a collective action problem. It's not simply an employer problem to solve. Um, but to me, I think it really starts with, with us getting more comfortable with the fact base um, around employment demographics. And, and, you know, candidly, there's a lot of risk in that. And, and I understand it, right? When you saw technology companies starting to be more proactive in the disclosure of composition of 
their workforce. You're starting to see a little bit more of that now. Um, you're starting to see a shift in expectations by investors through through mm -hmm. sort of a, a lens of ESG investing about the kinds of questions they're asking and what sorts of disclosures they're looking for. Um, and uh, Gayatri Agnew thinks that's a fantastic idea. Um, <laughs> I won't speak for my employer on how they feel about rising disclosures, but I think we've seen that when when sort of the court of public opinion starts asking questions, it does force some answers, and those answers shine a spotlight on some of the barriers and challenges that do exist. So I just think we have to start with a fact base and keep asking questions. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you were talking mainly about very large companies, and yet more than half or around half of yeah. all uh, people in the United States are employed by small businesses. And unfortunately, they don't have research departments. And they don't even have, in most cases, HR departments. And one thing that we have found has been really helpful is to leverage our financing and business coaching relationship with small businesses, especially in a tight labor market. They need workers, and they're needing to be pushed um, they're needing to go, and they're recognizing they need to go beyond their sort of typical way of hiring a new person, yeah. which is call Cousin Larry and ask him <laughs> if he knows somebody. Yeah. Um, and so we have been finding that um, that if uh, that with that actually there's quite a lot of interest on the part of business owners to do more, to do business differently. Um, and again, even on the issue of immigrants and refugees, again, the larger companies have lawyers. They know what questions you can ask, what you can't ask. They know um, how to train their frontline supervisors, um, but small, these smaller entities don't. So um, we're actually having, a, I think it's next week, we are um, doing a trainer of our business coaches so that they can be learning and then working with the businesses around these issues. That's great. So, so if I could, um, I, you know, I, and all of that is great, and et cetera. I, you know, as a as a African American person, uh, when you look at the data, or, or I could be Native American, I could be uh, Latino, um, uh, et cetera. Uh, it will take us hundreds of years, under our current structures and systems, to get economic equality in this country. We do not have my my family and my generation don't have the time to wait and, and wait on uh, the next report. Uh, I've been looking at port reports for 30 years. How many of y'all been looking at reports for 30 years? Raise your hands. How many of you have been looking at reports for 20 years? Raise your hand. How many of you have been looking at reports for 10 years? So the question, we actually need what they call punctuated equilibrium. That's when there's disruption in the current system because this, as someone said on the previous panel, we will continue, the, the system is operating perfectly well to get the results that we have today. It will continue to produce those results and we will continue to see incremental change and we will continue to see isolated communities, isolated individuals, segregated systems create the same kind of results that we have. So I would argue that we need to actually restructure how, or at least re-engineer, how our current economic system operates so that everybody can participate fully in our economy and in our system. And that means, uh, you know, I, and I'm not anti-capitalism. In fact, I'm very pro-capitalistic. 
but I am anti uh, we're leaving genius on the table, as Ben White says. I'm very much anti that uh, the, the child on Pine Ridge Reservation will never have the same opportunity as other children in this country. So I actually think, not just to complain about it, but I do think there is a discussion going on at the Business Roundtable, mm -hmm. in other places that people are starting this, and in Europe and other places around the world, that the current structure of wealth inequality will not change unless we do something very significantly different. I feel like you were looking at me when you said capitalism. <laughs> you like looked right over here. So, so, so let me, but no, 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 let me, let me, let me strongly agree with you. And if, if we're going to go in that direction, let's go in that direction. So when, 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 when Bernie Sanders visited Bentonville recently, he was, as you might, might be aware, down at our shareholders meeting um, this past June. And our CEO, I don't know how many of you know this, but stood up and called for an increase in the minimum wage. Walmart CEO, just to be clear, that did happen. Um, and part of that is because. Um, Target did it? Oh, no, I'm sorry. No. Go ahead. So, actually, I think what happened in 2015 is Walmart raised wages, then Target raised oh, wages. Oh, is that what happened? I think that is what happened. Okay. Again, back to the facts. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, but I digress just, just slightly. No, I mean, it's good. And then Maine raised. And then Maine raised. <laughs> so, look, like, even Walmart CEO After is saying to Congress, federal minimum wage is too low and it's not working for working Americans. That ought to tell us that it is very, very broken, right? If that's, you know, if that's what we're hearing. I also think you made the point about the BRT is saying this, and, and, and Gary's making a reference to the BRT recently putting out a really incredible new statement, new statement on the purpose of a corporation that dares to go so far as to suggest that corporations' sole existence isn't simply about shareholder value, but is actually about community building, um, about ensuring that individuals who work in the company, about communities that are served by the company, are also served by the way the company operates. And to that point, I could not agree Do you more. think that'll make a difference? I do. I genuinely do. Right. Well, I, I, the, the, the jury is out. I'll just say that on whether that's true or not, because what we're not seeing is the mechanism. Right. So you can say, we want to do X, Y, and Z, but you, have, you know, so there's Laying a difference the between, you know, current state and future state, and then you got to have a strategy to get there. That's, that's kind of what I'm not hearing, is what is right. that strategy, given on the other hand, the same corporations and others are going for uh, no new taxes, uh, tax benefits from the last, right. uh, you know, so you got two sides of the coin talking at the same, our whole tax structure is upside down if we're going to get at what That's you're talking right. about. Well, and I was going to say, I think um, wages are key, but so is health insurance, yeah. paid leave. Um, knowing your schedule two yeah. weeks in advance so mm -hmm. you can arrange your child care. That's right. Having an, at least an annual uh, review with your employer so you can say, how am I doing? Where could I go next? And having access to training. Um, so there's, there are all of those. And then, frankly, if we did all of those things, we'd still be leaving rural communities behind because we don't have um, high-speed internet access mm -hmm. in many rural communities. How will you keep young people there, attract young people back, or frankly have small companies that can thrive. Uh, we ha um, have, I'm thinking of one entrepreneur who literally when he has a large file to, uh, to um, communicate, to send to elsewhere, he gets in his car, he drives to the next, the next town over, sits in the parking lot next to the library, 
and sends his file because his internet access is so spotty that if you're sending a large file, it stops in the middle, has to start all over, corrupts the data, et cetera. Wow. So um, childcare, uh, access to childcare and access to the internet um, are two key resources that uh, rural communities um, desperately need in addition to the other things that we've been talking about today. Yeah, and I was just in the Delta recently and um, uh, they don't have banking. Meaning, in, you know, you go to the Delta in Mississippi, uh, there's, there's no banks. There's a credit union with one ATM. There's, you know, there's just no access to these things that we take for granted here in DC or in other places that folks don't have. And the poverty is so deep, you know, in, in uh, throughout the Black Belt, not just in Jackson, and throughout uh, the deepest poverty in our country is, is in Native nations across our country. Mm -hmm. So the question, uh, and why is that, right? One has to ask the question, well, what's, why is that, right? Uh, why have all the, the big banks left? Why isn't that somebody can get access to credit in these places? And part of it, part of it has to do with uh, there's no money there, right? So if there's no money there, we don't have any responsibility for that, we leave. And so these folks in the rural areas and in isolated areas in our country, so you can be in Appalachia, so it does, you, know, you can be in these places, uh, that, that we need a system that actually, no matter where you're at, we all agree that we want everybody to have access to opportunity and that that opportunity has to be targeted in different ways depending on how people are connected to structures, right? And in order for us to do this well. And so part of this has to be about if I'm a person in rural Appalachia, my results may be different or my uh, solutions may be different than somebody in uh, Northwest DC. And so how do you do that? Well, part of it is you say, hey, if opportunity is on a third floor of a Walmart uh, and everybody has to get to the third floor, uh, some people are going to take the escalator up to the third floor of Walmart to opportunity. Some people are going to take the uh, stairs, right? Some there's people. Uh, but if you're in a wheelchair and you're not situated to that opportunity in the same way, uh, we need, you need an elevator. You don't hear anybody arguing about we shouldn't have elevators right, for people that are disabled in our country. So we can actually do this. There's enough wealth in this country for us to actually create opportunity for all and create prosperity for now. But we actually, actually have to step back and look at how are we, what are the systems that actually create wealth? And then what, how are those systems designed so that everybody participates. And that's really at Prosperity Now, what we've been working on for 40 years, is actually how do we make sure everybody can be a part of this system. So that's great leading to, before we get to questions, what is one key action that folks listening at home or at work or our audience here who cares about leveling the playing field, what's one key thing right. that everyone can do? We could start with you, right. Steve. Well, I was going to say, 
broadband and childcare. I already said, said that. I guess I will say um, there is, uh, CEI has been doing this work for over 40 years. There are, there's a whole um, community of what are called community development financial institutions that are in urban, rural neighborhoods. Um, and they really are channels for government, foundation, private, individual investment in these communities. And they typically have very, they are sort of of those communities. They have close and trusted relationships with organizations in those communities. And there are many ways that they can be, I think, used as an investment vehicle and as a sort of catalytic partner with folks in the communities we're talking about. So um, in a slightly self-serving way, since I already used up my other good ideas, um, sort of rec uh, I always say you can't build a movement behind an acronym. So I wouldn't say, you know, CDFI would be on the banner, but looking for ways to invest in, um, in uh, through trusted intermediary organizations um, in, in and with these communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Gayatri? Uh, mine would say that uh, there's no there's no backbenching or sidelines to the equity conversation in America. So what are you personally doing to be a part of it? Um, and if what you're personally doing doesn't make you a little bit uncomfortable, um, maybe do a little bit more. So for me, that discomfort was moving from the Bay Area to Arkansas. Um, and it's been a slightly bit uncomfortable every day since, but... <laughs> No, don't get me wrong. I, I actually really love living in Bentonville, Arkansas, which really surprised me as, as a biracial woman raised in the Bay Area, right? That was surprising for me, and it was uncomfortable for me. Um, but I'm, I'm working through that. And you all in your daily lives have a chance to make yourself slightly uncomfortable, especially here in D.C. So I would encourage you to lean into some of those difficult um, or uncomfortable conversations. So um, thank you for that. Um, so I think that uh, the thing that I've actually seen work, and uh, you know, my previous job, I was the uh, CEO of an organization that worked with entrepreneurs. Uh, and uh, what I actually seen work in terms of change of demographics is entrepreneurship. Uh, people of color, particularly, are the fastest growing entrepreneurs in this country. Uh, and uh, they have the opportunity to actually address some of these underlying issues. Uh, that are going on. Now, it's not the only solution, so there's multifaceted, but I would argue uh, that we could have an a economic revolution in this country uh, by actually providing the access to capital. So the largest fund for people of color in the country right now is $16 million, this J.P. Morgan Chase fund out of Detroit. Six, that's the largest fund in the country. Right now I'm working uh, with a group of CDFIs on something called the Black Vision Fund, which is an $80 million fund to demonstrate. And all of these CDFIs, their loan loss is 0.87% over the last three years. This is better than most banks. Mm -hmm. Most banks are losing 5 to 6 to 7%. But we've figured out, we've cracked the code on how to lend to African Americans. So if we can actually grow that by 250% over the next several years, this fund, and grow lending and economic opportunity to community. We could create a renaissance in this country that would transform. Because you know, at the end of the day, right, these demographics are shifting. If we don't do something now, 
to address that, we're going to be at that, that Easter Island point I talked about earlier in my talk. That's where we're going to be. So investing in, and, and it's all the things that we talk about in a bipartisan way, hard work, dedication, doing what's necessary, hiring other people, being leaders in the community. We can actually transform the way we operate if we're willing to make the investment. But the market actually offer, operates off of confidence. So you think it operates off of dollars and cents and, the, and, and that type of thing. But when you're making loans to people, you're really making it based on the confidence that they, you have that they will pay you back. Right? That's how the whole system operates. And if we can have some confidence in folks that have proven and demonstrated they know how to lend to Latino people and to African-American people and to Native people, we can actually begin to change this. Because you know, when people have uh, resources in their pocket, if their families are fed, if they have uh, stable housing, if they have savings and emergency savings, they actually do better. We know this. So it's not a mystery. So that's my one thing. Oh, thanks a lot. This is a great conversation. I want to make sure the audience has time to ask all the great questions you have. Yes. You first. OK. okay you okay, first. Okay, great. Um, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate this conversation. And I'm particularly appreciative of this notion that the circumstances and inequity we face um, is not uh, a resource question or a technical solution question. It has, almost as much to do with our moral inclinations. And so I'm, I, my question has to do actually with moral framings that accompany policy actions and others. I'm thinking of research in like behavioral economics on the interpersonal mm -hmm. level where there's indications that incentives can crowd out selfless behavior or pro-social behavior when it's not accompanied by a moral framing. And I'm wondering there's, whether there's more that can be done in the area of discourse that speaks to the worthiness of certain places and whatever in terms of investment and the moral questions, the moral worth of our existing economic structures, like something um, that can accompany policy. And I think the shifts that like the business roundtable and where wealth resides is important, but there's a lot of skepticism there. So are there others that can be raising this? Is there other, are there other ways to contribute to this conversation? What's the role of media? Like, who else could be reframing how we do this, and what's the role of that moral framing? Mm -hmm. Convoluted one, sorry. Are we answering that or taking multiple questions? Oh, you could take, yeah, two, and then we can. Oh. <coughs> this is a much more tactical question. Um, so uh, the, the mayor of Topeka talked about the fact that they'd um, done some facilitation to help with transportation, the cost of transportation, and a, a few other things to, to make sure that people can actually get to work. Right and do it cost effectively, et cetera. And sorry for being pointed, but I'm wondering because of the the reach of Walmart, you know, how has Walmart actually worked with communities like this to ensure that people that are actually working in the stores have the ability to, you know, have that facilitation to just come to work because they don't have a car or maybe they have a car but it's broken down. You know, what are the what are the things Walmart's doing to invest in the community itself to, to you know, provide that? Um, one last thing is you talked about. Um, urban, basically uh, uh, not having grocery stores or banks, et cetera, in the Delta, we had a situation where we had a, I, I won't name names, but there was a large investment in Anacostia that just disappeared. And there are people in Anacostia mm -hmm. that do not have a grocery store. They have sure. to go to Maryland and Virginia you know, to do this. And so it was really challenging. And it was because of costs that that entity just pulled out. So mm -hmm. it's really difficult. 
Wow. Do you want to answer the Walmart question first? Sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sure. Specific. Um, so it's a, it's a great question, um, and it's a question I've been asking since the day I got there. And I think one of the things that surprised me is actually how much we do on this, and how much we do on the ground at a hyper local level. So um, there are specific bus stops in front of our stores that didn't exist before our. I mean, semi obviously before our store got there, but we've had stores open for a decade and still no bus stop, and we'll work collaboratively with the local municipality to get a bus stop there, to put a bus stop there, which doesn't just help our associates, helps our customers, right? Um, we want Walmarts to be a place that are accessible to folks. We've partnered with different workforce boards in different parts of the country. Part of the answer is it's going to be different everywhere to work on ride share systems. When bus, when bus systems don't run, we operate 24-7 in the majority of our locations. A lot of bus services don't mm -hmm. operate 24-7. So I think there are a number of different creative solutions we've had in specific markets. Um, we've had some interesting conversations more recently with some of the rideshare partners about what we could do um, to make it easier, to your point, just to get to make sure that our associates can get to work. So it's definitely, it's top of mind. There isn't a simple single solution. Um, and I do think it depends on the community. Um, but your question, if I could just jump in on that really quick and put Ms. Jane Oates on the spot, who's a couple chairs behind you. Well, you asked about what the role of the media is in this. And Jane works for Working Nation, um, who I think have done a really incredible job, I was telling her this yesterday, of telling the complexity of the story of the future of work and the role of companies in it, right? It's not happening to us. We are making decisions, all of us, on a daily basis in our consumer behavior, in where we want to purchase things, how we want to purchase things, how we behave as consumers that are driving and informing a lot of the decisions companies are making that are resulting mm -hmm. in a lot of the cha changing nature of work. Um, but it's complex. And I was saying to her yesterday, it's not a headline, it's a podcast, right? You need <laughs> you actually need the 30 minutes on it so you can dive into why is it so complicated and what are what are the sort of um, what are the different variables and how how can we identify those levers and then sort of push and pull appropriately to try to get to that higher level of moral imperative to understand that if there are no consumers, there are no companies. Does anyone else want to tackle that question? Yes. Yeah, um, I think uh, it's a great, both questions were great, and I think they're interlocking. Um, because if, we, if, we, if, if you're a, uh, anybody and you're working, uh, you have certain amount of your income that's used for different things. And if transportation is huge for you, or housing is huge for you, um, uh, that means that you're taking money from other things. And the question becomes, what kind of place do we want to be? What kind of community? do we want to be? And we get to decide that that's a values question. It is not necessarily just an economic question. Uh, and then how do we um, uh, ensure, given the vast amount of wealth that we have in this country, that everybody actually has access to not just income, but wealth, mm -hmm. right? So these are different things, right? I would argue that there, um, again, no easy answers. Uh, and it's easy to make villains, right, uh, of out of corporate sector or others. Uh, I actually think that we need to come to some agreement that transportation is a basic issue that everybody has to have. And housing is a basic thing that everybody else has to have. You know, uh, you, know you can walk outside here and there are people right on the streets in this place 
that don't have housing. They're living on the streets every day. Housing should be actually a something that everybody has, right? But because of how we structured our society and our system, uh, we, you know, we're not taking care of those of the least of us, people with mental illness, people that have uh, emergencies and, and fall down. So I would argue, and this might be a minority argument in this world, uh, that we actually can change the conditions of that. We can maintain a system that actually uh, benefits people based on their merit, but also a system that ensures that there's basic things that we have as a community, as a society, that we all have to give up something to make that happen. So that's what I believe. Um, oh, oh, yes, yes, sorry. Well, um, <laughs> a couple of thoughts just um, on the transportation piece. I, I moved to Maine 16 years ago from New York City, and one of, one of my areas of culture shock was around the lack of public transportation. There are vast um, swaths of, of rural America where there is no public transportation, and the only way you get anywhere is in a car. Um, so it's, uh, um, as you say, solutions are going to have to be different in, in different places. And in, frankly, there are a lot of places in rural America where there are no grocery stores or there are no pharmacies. And so that means you have to drive long distances to, to get there. Um, so definitely solutions um, need to be different. I guess um, I am both a pragmatist and an idealist in the sense that um, I do believe every morning we wake up and we can create the society we want to live in and that there is opportunity for us to build political will to make these transformational changes that, that we were talking about earlier. In the meantime, I do believe, and I see it every day, that there are ways to um, align the, um, well, at least we see it every day, um, that we can work with business leaders, especially small business leaders who are very close to the communities where they live, um, and help them take steps that are good for their small business, that are good for the folks who work for them and with them, and that are good for their communities. And that there's a lot of progress we can make um, that, that takes advantage of that. Um, so we don't need to wait for the amount of time it's going to take to build the political will and the social will to make the changes we all want to see. We can at the same time be um, crafting these sort of one-by-one -one solutions and using that to inform then the policy change that we need to push it to the next level. Great. You? Wow. <laughs> In this blazer. <laughs> Woman over there? Yeah. Thank you. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm wondering if any of you have read Richard Rothstein's book, The Color, the Color Law. Law. <laughs> and since, Gary, you're from Minneapolis, which recently changed its zoning policies to eliminate a lot of the single-family zoning housing, which could be pointed to as, I think, a reason behind some of the um, discrimination in terms of racial discrimination in terms of neighborhoods. Do any of you have a view that changing zoning laws in, in certain places in America can deconstruct the, some of the themes that we're, we're dealing with today? And is that, is that enough? Is that, is that represent the punctured equilibrium? And I love that phrase, by the way, that, 
because it, it also makes people uncomfortable to change the zoning in the neighborhood that they bought in and live in, have maybe lived in for a long time. And is that a possible solution? So I'll start off by saying I spent eight years on the Metropolitan Council that actually defined uh, uh, the policies that you're talking about in Minneapolis. So I actually was much, much a part of that. And, and my, uh, my uh, wife was the mayor when, uh, when all this was happening uh, in Minneapolis. So I had a lot of, I, I, I took a lot of rocks and, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, intensity around the issues that you're talking about because it is the uh, the region-wide plan that drives uh, both zoning and economic development in, in that region. Uh, and now I'm here. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, I can say that uh, it's part of a solution. As I said, these are complex problems and they take a multitude of various solutions. Uh, and so that's one of the solutions that will make a difference if we have more density. But I also think some of my more progressive liberal friends uh, have used that as, uh, as a, as a catch-all thing that, uh, and I think it's overhyped in some respects uh, as, it, as if it's the solution. So, so uh, one of the biggest things that any of these places could do is unleash the capital that exists so that people can actually utilize it to create jobs and economic opportunity. Uh, I think that also is part of the, the, the mix. So I think it's, I don't think it's that one thing, but I think that's a big move given the amount of segregation uh, that we've had in these communities, which isolates people from opportunity. So thank you for the question. Yeah. Uh, the woman in the jacket has a question. Um. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Uh, I am an educational psychologist. I work in a nonprofit organization in Annandale, Virginia, and I direct an early childhood program where we serve uh, nearly 300 children, 300 families uh, a year. Uh, we're also part of a more complex organization that was formed 52 years ago. Uh, with the participation of about 26 churches that wanted to do good in their community. And what happened 52 years is that people knocked doors and see what can we do to make this world better? And they found that there were families who didn't have access to childcare and that uh, childcare opportunities were being limited for the working poor um, at, at that time and that there was not inclusive programs available. Once they fundraise, they tried to put their children in programs and they, those children were not accepted because they were of color. Um, I, right now, serve 83% of my children come from um, poor, low-income families. 40% uh, have special needs diagnosed and about 80% come from immigrant families. So I'm right there. <laughs> Mm -hmm. With Do you them. have a question? Oh, yes. Uh, the question that I have is that uh, there is a lot of investment being made at the federal, local, and state levels to support these families, but it's not effective. And there's a lot of barriers in place. For example, childcare subsidies are available for these families, but only for families that have specific schedule that matches the services that we provide. Is there something that we can do at the systems levels to first of all uh, cross information and 
improve access because families have to uh, bypass a lot of barriers to have access to funds that are already in existence. And the second question that I have is how can we have uh, more uh, opportunities to bring to the table? Um, because I think like with childcare and health and everything else, it cannot be a solution that comes from one place. Everybody needs to be on the table. So how can we have corporate America be part of the solution to what, what are the opportunities out there for corporate America to really uh, hear what the needs are and be part of that solution? Gayatri, anyone want to take that? Yes, corporate America would like to answer that question. Um, so, and here so, you are. So it's interesting. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old, and I have reliable, affordable, high-quality early learning care for them. And that has changed and will continue to change the course of my life. And there are many working moms. Well, excuse me. All moms are working moms. There are many um, formally working in careers moms. Paid who moms. Don't, paid moms. <laughs> I like, don't have a good other term for that. Who don't have that. And that is, that's, that's an injustice this country's got to power through. And it's probably one of the single greatest barriers, at least when it comes to advancement for women that I've observed um, ever, right? So I don't know what we do about it. I personally, two years ago, founded a, a group at Walmart called Working Moms at Walmart. Um, and one of the issues that we as a, as a coalition of individual employees inside of the company have taken on is how do we have tough conversations about, about access to early learning education, but also parental leave, right? So Walmart did change our parental leave policies recently, about a year and a half ago. And we created equity between the frontline worker and the corporate worker. So if a store associate has a baby and goes out on leave, she's able to take advantage of the exact same benefits that I took advantage of when I had my daughter three years ago. And to me, that is an enormous step forward. Everyone should be doing that. The vast majority of retailers in America today don't do that. Um, but if we can't even figure out how to allow a mom to be at home with her infant baby, I'm not sure where we are on, on the continuum of childcare in general, but I think it's a, I think it's a crisis. Skytree Agnew thinks it's a crisis, and I am working inside of Walmart to try to change it, but I can't tell you yet Walmart thinks it's a crisis because I don't think corporate America has been loud enough on the issue of access to childcare. I better stop talking before I get in trouble. Let's take two more questions. <laughs> you in the back and then the woman in the front. Guy in the gray suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guy in a gray suit. <laughs> um, so I know we've been talking about how this is all of our problems, but the thing about this being all of our problems is that it could end up being none of our problems at the same time. I wonder who do you think among government, corporations, uh, nonprofits, and us as individuals should take the lead on solving some of the inequality issues that we've been talking about today, and why? And then the woman in the front, we could ask your question too, and then we'll close out. For the third of Americans who are working in low-wage jobs, um, it's it's very hard to search for work at the local level, uh, and it's it's um, it's a cobweb, right? And so, is where are we in terms of wage transparency, uh, so that the search for work can make clear from the start what the wage is, so that the the job seeker can um, speed up their process mm -hmm. and know what's worth spending time on. Good question. Um, so, uh, you know, both, both those are great questions. So the one is who's on first and where do you start? Uh, the other is if you're a person searching for 
uh, economic opportunity, how, how would you do that uh, in a market that is blind, if, I, if I'm paraphrasing your question. Um, so I'm going to answer this by saying that uh, there's been several points in this country where we've had great progress on issues that you're talking about. Uh, one of them was what they call the New Deal. Many of us wouldn't be in the room, uh, or our, our, our forefathers, if there wasn't a New Deal, right? Meaning a, a New Deal for uh, low and moderate income people in this country that created the middle class. And now we have a middle class that is shrinking. Uh, we have people that, uh, we have an economy that actually has more jobs, uh, more opportunities than people, if I could put it that way. Uh, but there is a, a mismatch of skills, of, of people having the, re the uh, ability to see what's in the market and be able to take advantage of those things. So both of those things are, are there. I don't think that we're going to be able to solve this issue until we have a new new deal, right? So, so that is in part a government thing, but it's also part of a corporate and uh, economic opportunity thing. So it has to be both of those working together to actually realize that we won't be able to maintain our quality of life in this country. We won't be able to compete nationally and internationally, unless we change the, some of the basic things that are going on right now, and I think that's what the Business Roundtable is actually coming to the conclusion to, and this question of how do we create opportunity for all uh, becomes critical. So that part of my answer to your question is we need to actually shake this thing up in, in terms of how it's operating so that everybody can actually fully participate. And that means our tax structure, the tax structure drives wealth in this country. That has to change too. We actually have to have a tax structure that actually also rewards hard work, dedication at all levels of our society. And right now that tax structure is geared towards, and that's why we have wealth inequality in this country, is the tax structure is structured the way it is. And if, if it's structured so that it rewards wealth only, then people at the bottom, people like uh, that are sitting in this room, won't be able to take advantage of full opportunities in this country. So I'll stop there. Great. I think you're totally right about the structural question. If you think about the economic measures we love to go to most, we love to go to GDP growth, we love to go to unemployment numbers, right? Neither of those measures tell you about underemployment or economic mobility. And so until we as a country are able to look to and track those metrics, and there is tremendous being, progress being made on that. There are regional economies looking at metrics like that. There are states trying to look at metrics like that. So to answer the question of who, who's on first, um, us as individuals, American apathy will kill this country. So if you aren't taking it upon yourself, for your personal mission to help create economic mobility in this nation, we're doing it wrong. Now, how you do that, through what vehicle you do that, right, depends on where you are and where you're positioned to have power and influence, and you've got to use it. Um, so I, I actually, I happen to work in an employer, so I'll say it's the employers that need to go first and need to help to 
um, proactively redefine what the future contract looks like between employers and workers and be willing to have tough conversations, because they are tough, right? And they're tough because no one wants to go first to say the thing that everybody knows, which is that economic mobility in this country is broken, right? Like that's, that's reality. So let's talk about that, and then let's talk about what we can do to unlock some of that and to fix some of that. But I do think it is a true statement. Employers can't fix it alone, right? As soon as you say start to shift some of these systems, you're going to run into um, a need to modernize aspects of our current sort of labor market system and the laws and regulations around it. So I think it, it is an unfortunate both and, but I'll, I'll say employers need to, need to help to start the movement, if you will, right? Right? If you think about, and, and our, our Earth, planet Earth here is kind of dying, but we have been very proactive in some ways, right, and galvanized in how we purchase products and how we think about different companies through a lens of sustainability, I think we need to do the same thing through the lens of human capital and economic opportunity. We need to judge companies by whether or not they are helping or hurting when it comes to advancing economic opportunity in our country and around the world. And then to answer your transparency question about wage, I actually love this one, and I think technology is making things possible that weren't before. Um, Glassdoor actually has a whole thing on wage, which is really cool. And Google Jobs, if you haven't seen this, has a beta where they're disclosing uh, salary and wage. So I, I think it's, it's possible, and I think part of it just comes back to that individual action demanded every single time. Why isn't that on here? Why isn't that transparent? Why aren't you showing me that? Um, I think in a lot of instances, it's not been meant to be kept a secret. It's just a dynamic number. And so how do you disclose a dynamic number continuously? Well, through technology. So I think, I think it's possible, but it's not prominent today, and I think we can change that by asking for it. Betsy, do you have any closing words? Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, I think we all have to do it. There's no one group that can, um, I mean, white people have to be there at the table. People of color have to be there. We all need to get a lot more comfortable about talking about earned and unearned advantage and disadvantage and use that as a way of starting a conversation about um, how we can change structures in ways that um, um, improve equity across our society. And I, I guess, in a way, getting back to the very beginning of our conversation where we're talking about gay marriage, um, I actually think that the combination of um, sort of the, the speed with which that happened and um, young people in our country is what gives me hope. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at data around people wanting to align their purchasing power and their mm -hmm. investment with their values, uh, very different from baby boomers on average than millennials. And um, I think there's a lot of power in our young people about having and st starting conversations differently, some over technology, um, some in the old-fashioned way of having conversations um, that young people in our society will bring to these issues. Uh, and I guess, uh, again, being that mix of optimism and realism, I'm hopeful that um, that they'll help us to accelerate these conversations. Way to give millennials a shout out and make up for that other panel. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm not a millennial. <laughs> well, I'd love to thank Tracy, our, our moderator, and our terrific panelists. And those of you who've asked questions, um, it's been a great conversation. Um, and it tees up really nicely, I think, our next conversation, which is going to focus on and be on leveraging business choices. So we're going to take, I think, about a 10-minute break. Um, and for those of you who are here in, in person, you can stretch your legs. There's some coffee and, I think, some snacks outside. So... 
refresh yourself a little bit. Um, for those of you online, thank you for being with us, and we'll start up again in about 10 minutes. Great.